Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Once a jolly swagman camped by a billabong Under the shade of a coolabar tree He sang as he watched and waited till his billy boiled You'll come a-waltzing Matilda with me Waltzing Matilda Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for filmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. Hello! We also have Bill Graham. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> and a special guest with us today to talk about true history of the Kelly Gang, it's Matt Spola. Hello. What is up, Matt? Uh, not a lot. I mean, I waved, and I'm not even doing a video chat right now, so it tells you where I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uh, yeah, I had a bunch of people who were like, I'm having so much trouble getting used to like conference calls. You know, I'm not used to having meetings where I can't see people's faces. And I'm like, you haven't been hosting a podcast for seven years, have you? <laughs> I did. I, I will say there. I did a conference call a couple days ago and I was we had to do we did Zoom, but we didn't I didn't realize that Zoom. It was my first time ever doing it. I didn't know that you could only use it for 40 minutes if there are more than two people and then you, it cuts you off. So we mm-hmm. had to continue it over Facebook. Um, and I was the only one who had my annoying ass face up there because everyone else just went to audio and i hated it so much (laughs) uh zoom i'm just i just am am shocked at like how quickly the supremacy of zoom happened it's still like blowing my mind like i i think i've said a person that i work with her husband works for zoom and like when i met her almost two years ago it was like he works for fucking what what is that like that's a nonsense thing that you just told me and i just keep talking to her and being like so you're just fucking millionaires now like what's happening (laughs) uh yes but we are here today to talk about true history of the kelly gang a movie that bafflingly lacks the definite article the in front of it but i am presently yeah i know right doing a very good job of not doing my usual thing which is adding or subtracting the definite article to a movie that does or does not require it so let's see how long that goes for. Um, it sounds into- awkward, though. I just want to get that out of the way. <laughs> right, yeah, I, I want that definite article. What's funny is when I first saw the title, I, I my my mind essentially just kind of autocorrected the word true to the. So I just thought it was the history instead of true history because I knew it wasn't true. It was based on a novel. Yeah, I didn't know they were going to be that coy about everything in this fucking thing. So I just thought it was the true history. I, uh, yeah, I um, I didn't realize that it didn't have the definite article, I think, until our benevolent lord and master, Jordan Raup, in a Slack chat said, my favorite thing about this movie is that it doesn't have the word the in front of it. And I was like, <laughs> it was like when you were looking at that picture of a rabbit and a duck at once and like you only yeah. ever see the rabbit and then someone's like, oh, it's a duck and you just can never unsee the duck now. I'll never get back to rabbit. <laughs> But anyway, uh, let's uh, get through the front matter before we get to Quarantine Corner. And uh, we'll begin by saying, follow us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show. Give us a comment or rating on iTunes. You can email us, podcast at filmstage.com. And of course, you can become a patron of this here podcast by going to patreon.com slash the Show. 
for as little as one dollar an episode and that price structure may be changing so keep an eye on that but for as little as one dollar an episode presently you can get access to our super cool slack channel where you can chat with other movie nerds like you about stuff that even goes beyond movies if you're brave and you get added into our cool raffles to get first crack at all that great stuff we are also brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema, where every day their fantastic curators bring you a brand new film to watch and enjoy. If you're like me, you're presently trying not to buy many things that might require someone to have to deliver them to you, out of kindness and consideration for the people who are driving deliveries. But wouldn't it be nice if there was a service that delivered a brand new film to you every day? Well, that service is Mubi. Every day they add a new film, you have 30 days to watch, and then it disappears. So you have a perfectly controllable, accessible, but still expansive selection of 30 films to watch and enjoy. Some of the great films that are on there right now are Surf Nazis Must Die and Dawson City Frozen Time. This, of course, part of their Unusual Suspects documentary series. The synopsis is as such... Using archival footage to tell the story, Dawson City Frozen Time pieces together the bizarre true history of a collection of some 500 films dating from the 1910s to 1920s, which were lost for over 50 years until being discovered buried in the subarctic swimming pool deep in the Yukon Territory in 1978. A great doc, and Bill Morrison's work in, in general is just is an incredible in how he finds these I, I i don't know how he unearths all of these old films but all of his work kind of uh works with this archival footage and uh one of the coolest is miners him which actually has uh johan johansson you know who who passed recently but it's a a score of um yeah it's about a 40 minute uh, mining film set to Johan Johansson, so it's as it's as majestic as you can imagine. <laughs> yes, and uh, you can get a free thirty day subscription to Movie by going to mubi dot com slash filmstage. Again, that is mubi dot com slash filmstage. And now here we are. It's quarantine corner. Let's tell the world at large what we have been up to in our own. COVID-19 restricted lives. Bill Graham, how's shipping going with you? Uh, things are going well. Things are going well. Um, I have one sardine can left. So uh, <laughs> if, if, you, if you know, uh, I've been slowly working my way through all the sardine cans that I've built up over the last few years. And so uh, Erica heard that I had one left and she she nearly about jumped for joy. So, yes. Um, As I would too if the person I was stuck with yes, told me that yes, finally the sardines were going to be gone. Uh, it's, it's good times over here. Um, don't taking, worry, there's taking, plenty of canned salmon to fill in. <laughs> uh, taking the dog for a walk pretty much every single day and she is absolutely loving it but we've also figured out um new areas of our neighborhood which is kind of delightful and also like kind of scary that <laughs> we live so close and we're just like oh look at these houses these houses are nice where the hell is this <laughs> so yeah that's fun it's fun everything's fun everything's fine that's pola <laughs> what about you how's where, where, where are you located again 
I'm in Chicago. Oh, another Chicago guy. Yep. Um, <laughs> fine. I guess I'm fine. I don't know. If you were to ask me this, maybe like five weeks ago, I'd say I was at like my lowest since middle school. Um, oh, Jesus. Yeah, I know. Because I would wake up and then I'd be awake for maybe like an hour and a half and I'd sleep and then I'd wake up and it was 730 and the sun was had just a sliver of light that was taunting me and I left. But I mean, fine. I don't know. I've been doing... I've been doing a lot of the same stuff over and over. I've I've been playing a lot more video games lately, and nothing new. Yeah. I'm not doing anything oh. new. That's the thing. I'm doing. I'm playing games that I've already played dozens of times each. Um, I've played through the Banjo Kazooie games again. I played oh. through like yeah, I know, right? Um, yeah, I, I used to have like full on the soundtrack of that fucking thing. Like, I, and I've been with him, stuffed so, animals. Yeah, yeah. I have a plushie over on my dresser, and I've actually yeah. listened to the the soundtrack a lot. I played Psychonauts four times in a month. <laughs> oh Three God. of those were in one week, and one of those was in one twelve and a half hour sitting. Um, so I don't. I'm really worried for you now. <laughs> the thing is, I'm. I'm I don't know if I, I like I've said this before I don't know if I'm doing this more often because I'm it's some sort of nostalgic coping mechanism or if I'm just I want to do something that's more actively engaging me in a world that isn't mine mm-hmm. I get I get that yeah um but I mean otherwise it's not I mean once actually once because I work in a movie theater part-time and my last shift there was March 13th I believe um because it was like two days later that everything started shutting down like crazy. Um, so, I mean, once actually, once, you know, the IRS actually got stuff done, um, <laughs> I think my mood changed dramatically. So. All right. Well, that's good. <laughs> I, I'm still, I'm still, the, the amount of times that you played Psychonauts is kind of blowing my mind. It's a funny game. I've heard that. I've never played it. Yeah, no, it's hilarious. And that's the thing, too, is you're you're the first half you're largely encouraged for minutes on end to just sit and listen to idle dialogue and it rewards you for that, essentially. So I'm not really so I don't really feel like I'm playing a game. I feel like I'm watching sort of like a TV series. Hmm. Yeah, Yeah. it's fascinating. And I wrote about the game on the spool. You can read about it. It was my first time writing about a video game also. So I guess quarantine brought the best out of all of us. (laughs) The true spirit of quarantine. (laughs) Yeah, um, the spirit, the spirit of quarantine. Something that Michael and I talked about for some godforsaken reason. Um, speaking of uh, obviously God-forsa- drinking bleach, <laughs> Michael, Michael Snydell, how's your how's your Chicago based quarantine going? Um, I mean, I don't know if I'm making good decisions that often uh, Brian I roped you into watching too hot to handle um <laughs> and uh that's like the fourth or fifth uh incredibly horny slash depressing uh slash uh l- l- let's kindly say kooky uh reality show I've watched um yeah, no, I, I have been playing video games as well. My partner and I have been making our way through Nancy Drew. I've played four of them this month. I did not know uh, there was even one Nancy Drew video game. Yep, neither what did are, I. What are these on? Because I feel like the only ones I've, I feel like that's a, I don't know, there's some, there's some, fran- you know, licensed franchises that I feel like are just sort of damned to the annals of handheld consoles. I feel like that would be one of them. <laughs> 
Well, it's funny you say that because I did actually play my first Nancy Drew game on Game Boy Advance. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Way back in the day, but they are on PC and Mac. There are about 35. There was a, a new one last year. Uh, people do not seem to be a big fan of it. Yeah, my my partner got into something called Big Fish Games, which is a service that has some interesting games, but also gives you, like, you can try and buy a number of games, like, through this subscription for an absurdly low price. So we've been able to, like demo as well as just like purchase things for i think it's something like seven dollars a month you don't get quite unlimited but you get like six to eight purchases a a month but uh yeah that's how we've been playing most of them we're on uh the tomb of the lost queen i think right now i think that's what she's got a tomb odds are she died yes (laughs) Yeah, there there also seems to be a character who believes that aliens are responsible for the pyramids. Well, I and mean, really convinced about it. So I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm getting there too. You know, I'm, I'm starting to make my tinfoil hat. So you're just talking about reality now. You believe that the, <laughs> this is going to be your flat Earth thing. <laughs> It didn't take long, let's be honest. <laughs> um, I guess uh, as for myself, I started playing a video game that I haven't played in a while. It's called uh, Ark Survival Evolved. It's on the iPhone. Yeah. It's um, the dinosaur one, right? Yeah, it's like a survival crafting game. So it's a little bit almost like Minecraft in a way. There's a lot of like chopping down trees and quarrying stone to make stuff, but the twist is that the graphics are really good and there's goddamn dinosaurs um <laughs> the, my issue is i feel like the curve of this game is just a fucking like backwards l it's it's so it becomes so immediately impossible after you've like done the tutorial opening that um i like have restarted the game like 78 times in like 5 days cuz i will I will, you know, you get up and it's like, make a stone pick. Now do some other stuff. And I'm like, I, I tame myself a parasaur. And I'm like, great, I've made a home. I've got a sleeping bag. Everything's going to be fine. And then I get pounced on by five velociraptors. <laughs> and then it's like, would you like to respawn at your sleeping bag? And I'm like, totally. Yeah, that that's helpful. All my stuff is there. And then the raptors are still there. So I walk out of my house and I'm immediately murdered again. <laughs> And it just becomes impossible for me to do anything. So I quit. Um, but I'm still playing it because I I feel like at some point I will get the hang of it and I will be able to create my dinosaur farm. And I'm going to be awesome. Um, I also was indeed snookered by Michael Snydell into watching Too Hot to Handle. Um, I talked my work friend melissa into watching the first episode with me after we'd done like a texting together watch of tiger king i guess i like played my tiger king you owe me one card and got one episode out of her and then i kept watching because i was invested and i told her i'm gonna keep watching you don't have to but be aware 
I'm going to text you about it. <laughs> even if you're not like responding, I'm just going to give you my moment to moment. I, 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 so it keeps popping up on the Netflix thing. Uh, every time Erica and I like turn on Netflix. Um, and I watched it the first time and I got about 20 seconds in and I was like, no, 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 Let's, no, <laughs> like, like just scroll down. Like I'm, I'm tired of this preview already. And she sat there the next time it popped up and let it run for like two minutes or something like that. And I was just like, oh no, no. Wait, how long is the preview though? Was it, uh, was it playing on repeat? I, I think it's I think it's a right around two minutes or so. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's a pretty long clip of like this this guy making out with this blindfolded chick, like just <laughs> well, I thought you were on. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm talking about too hot, too to, hot handle. to handle. It was like now I'll watch Tiger King. With that. Yeah, no. no, no. <laughs> Joe Exotic no. doesn't make out with chicks. Um, um but yeah. So th- this this preview looks nightmarish. And yeah, it's, it's got everything that I don't want out of, out of these kind of reality shows. I much prefer my bachelors. If, if this is going to be the situation that we're in where it's just one person being super horny. Well, I guess, no, that's, that's still that's wrong. But, yeah, okay, I was about to say, the bachelor is like, everyone's person, horny, but it's who can be the horniest. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. But, but one person fo- or one person is the focus, not like I need, I need some, some, some focus in my shows. I can't just have sure. people, yeah. people hooking just, up all over the screen. Yeah, this only is not one an, person can grab the is, horns. This is not an ordered system. It is a chaotic system. Yes. People yeah. just show up and everyone's like, I really felt a connection when we looked at each other because their body is amazing. (laughs) Like these are people I've talked to Brian about. This is not a spoiler to say uh, Brian and I have multiple conversations uh, that we do not understand what these people's lives were before this, because the possibility of a person existing beyond their body or somehow more insanely the possibility that someone could go without any kind of stimulation for multiple days is something that breaks their mind right (laughs) they lose their shit it makes you wonder how they live it also makes you wonder how they must assume everyone else lives it's it's a very distressing show to watch i have to watch this this sounds you sold me on this so like alex heaney is gonna be so mad that we've talked yet another person into watching this it sounds horrible and i love it's funny i remember once i was oh this is like months ago someone was talking about love island to me and i was like why i mean rules well that that was a thing they were they were talking about it for like maybe 30 seconds and they're like they were like yeah so so and so you know like you you've seen it right and i was like i've never seen a second of it and he's like you out of all people, the trashiest bullshit. You would love it, and I was like, "Oh, okay. I'm happy you know me." I am. Um, I don't usually I would actually watch. like to say the new season of Love Island is actually very cute compared to what the usual well, shows. So that's fascinating to hear that people think it's still trashy because, yeah, like too hot to handle is probably peak trashiness. If you want an actual recommendation i actually really like the circle which oh is fascinating God. 
because it's the most dystopian present uh, premise, but everyone's actually really weirdly kind to each other. <laughs> and it's very confusing because it's so easy to be a terrible person well, that's, within the rules of that game. That's what's funny about uh, Too Hot to Handle is that I, I like even said to you, Michael, I'm like, I don't know if my expectations <laughs> like have just been lowered. Like if my bar has just dropped because, but like there is a genuinely affecting emotionally intelligent moment between two of the characters uh, bryce <laughs> uh no yeah no definitely not piano playing boat dwelling bryce i'm talking like about <laughs> david and sharon you all know who i'm talking about every all of my uh my too hot to handle watchers i didn't even i couldn't even come up with like a fandom name for us all of my handlers out there i was gonna say oh, oh, oh. <laughs> i don't like that but i yeah uh... All of my hot dogs? What? I don't no! Know. No! <laughs> just did with the no immediately. But uh, I haven't finished watching it. I feel like I have to. I'm past the midway point. I really just got to get through the last four episodes or something. Is I will tell you. Some, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I just want to say it does peter out, Brian, really badly at the oh, end. Oh, that sucks. How does it compare to Sexbox? Do you know about Sexbox? I don't know. I've never watched reality TV. So this maybe is like my first bite at the apple. And so I'm just like involved because I don't know any better. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, quick. Yeah, quick refresher for those who know. Sexbox is a British uh, reality show. I don't know if it's still on, but it was basically just people. And it was just a giant soundstage with an yes. audience. And it would bring people onto an, uh, to a stage and it would just be two people. They go into a giant box. It's like the size of a shed. And then they'd bang. And then they'd come out and describe it and be like, yeah, this is how it went. And that's the show. Why? <laughs> Why would you do I, that? I show, I Why not? a great British baking show. Like, what, what the fuck is, uh, what have we done? This is horrifying. That is, that is some dystopian shit right there. There's also another British show... Well, I like release the hounds, but I also like another show where um, you do not get to see their face, but you get to see their body. So oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, what's behind door number one, door number two and door number three. And so they decide who they want to date based on the body. <laughs> that is disturbing. Um. So, yeah, I uh, I hate myself. <laughs> but but and uh, to to offset, I began watching Community again. Oh, nice. Hey. Community is a great show. Um, other than that, yeah, still doing the sanitizer thing, still working a job, still raising a daughter, still doing all that other stuff. I've just got so much stuff going on. I just don't have time to finish Too Hot to Handle. Stop bragging. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was described on uh, Twitter by someone as a super dad superhero type of thing. So that that was pretty great. That was a good moment. And then I immediately started watching Too Hot to Handle. Um, <laughs> just petering away all my goodwill. So that's <sighs> us. That's how we're living our lives uh, in the middle of this whole COVID thing. Uh, update on the camera that I bought. Um, still not here. And no one is able to give me a firm timeline as to when it will get here. Did you buy it through an official site then? I bought it from, I, I wanted to support a local business. So I, I bought it from District Camera, where I have bought lenses before and everything. And it is not the fault of the retailer. Fuji, uh, you know, their supply chain got all fucked up. So they are, they are actually still scrambling to try to hit close to their initial release date. 
Um, and so we'll see what happens because I got the silver top with the kit lens and they're like, well, the black body only is going to come out first. I guess they just had that ready to go. And then they're like, and then maybe the silver body and then maybe the kits or maybe the kits and then the silver body. But whatever, you picked the one that's definitely coming out last and we don't know when it's coming. So that's me. So that's Quarantine Corner. Um, <laughs> now we can talk about what we're really here to talk about, which is True History of the Kelly Gang, the newest film from director Justin Kurtzel, who previously did Macbeth and the stagey award-winning Assassin's Creed. <laughs> hey. For the Triple Nine Award for the best movie they told you not to see. So... This uh, is based and no of- one saw anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> not not to not to go you know talking about blank check like we do so often, but uh, apparently Ben Hosley, the producer and like unofficial third host of Blank Check, loves that movie. They talked about it once. I was super excited that they too realized it's genius. Um, this movie, however, based on the book by Peter Carey, and uh, it was written for the screen by Sean Grant. And it stars Essie Davis, Nicholas Holt, and George McKay, amongst a bevy of other fine actors, all of whom I am sure that we will talk about. Uh, before that, though, here is the trailer. Oh, you die for your mommy. Tell the truth. You're a dancing monkey. Go do it. A man cannot outrun his destiny. Your mother sold you. Fifteen pound you cost me. And you can learn that back. I were but a child, yet I were already traveling full tilt toward the man I would become. Alright, so that's a clip from the trailer for True History of the Kelly Gang. This movie is a stylized account of the rise and eventual fall of famous Australian bushranger Ned Kelly and his uh, self-named gang. As I said, directed by Justin Kurtzel. Um, When we talk about it, I'd love to know what people's thoughts on Kurtzel were as well as what this movie is. Uh, And as always, of course, we will start the nutshell reviews and then get into spoilers later on. Let us begin with our guest, Matt Spola. What are your thoughts on Kurtzel and what did you think of True History of the Kelly Gang? I don't think I can really formulate any thoughts on Kurtzel before because I've only seen his Macbeth, um, which I remember liking, but I like it when movies are orange or red. So I don't know how much that <laughs> means anything. So <laughs> what was that? Um, Just me laughing. That you, oh, okay. I, didn't know I, what that, I didn't know what that sound was. I was like, all right. <laughs> Um, no, but, um, I remember liking Macbeth just, you know, in, in like an empty fetishized sort of way. Um, but in I, when I found out I was, this was him, I was like, okay, I guess this makes sense on paper, but I watched the screener for this on maybe like Tuesday, I think, or yeah, and it's Sunday now. Um, when I first watched it, I like I like the first half quite a bit, um, and then I wouldn't say it entirely derails. It just that it's just that it becomes it. This and um, Bad Education I watched within 24 hours, which is just weird because they both feel like movies that the script is totally dissonant from the actual direction. Um, but 
the thing about this movie was the first half I do like, you know, you'll have sequences that are essentially butting heads and they'll, you know, sequences will start before the previous one begins to actually end. And so it's essentially this like, you know, you just have this emotional mosaic and it feels it's funny. I didn't know this was based on a novel at the time. And, you know, it felt it, it feels like a novel, um, which I'm not a massive fan of when people say that. But in terms of, you know, scenes feel more like paragraphs than they do scenes. Um, but then it actually tries to focus more on its narrative. And that's where it kind of falls apart for me. Um, and not only just because it's actually trying to tell a story, but because it's actually trying to juxtapose what it's showing on the screen with what came before it, especially when you're talking about this, you know, hyper machismo sort of group of people, um, you know, sort of creating like a, a subsequent generation of people who are very much not that, or at least toying with that. The movie doesn't really set up a standard at the beginning to actually, you know, there's at the beginning, you have this very, you know, straight, sweaty gaze. And then halfway through, it shifts away from that. But the movie doesn't actually take its time to, um, you know, set a, a quote unquote standard at the beginning. So when there is any sort of, you know, vague nudity or implied nudity in the second half, it should be titillating. Um, but it just feels safe. Um, and then it just gets really conventional. And then the, you know, whereas the style in the first half feels a lot more grounded in terms of the actual movie and the emotions, it just feels extraneous in the second half. There is especially like in the last 20 minutes or so, there's just a big sequence of strobe lights and it doesn't even feel I, I which in, again, I'm a total hoe for, but it just <laughs> feels like it was laid on top of it. Like, I'm pretty sure I don't know if this is just me, but I feel like there's a part where in like the back of one scene where you can see kind of like where do they put the strobe machine? Um, but everything, but it's like, I was confused as to how many of these choices are meant to be diegetic as to how much of them are, are meant to be laid on top of each other in a sort of meta textual because you're taking essentially, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's a mistake for you to take the first movie, the first feature ever made from 1906, which was about this topic. And then to put it on, turn it on, on its ear to an extent and make something sort of postmodern and revisionist and using that art form as a capsule of Australian history to an extent. But I don't think it does that. All right. Michael Snydell, what about you? Yeah, I I actually have very similar thoughts to, to Matt in this sense. I, I think that um, to put it a little more explicitly in uh, relation to the first and second half, I really like that the first half is almost the opposite of what you expect as an outlaw story. Like uh, when it when it comes early, like he's very much abused by these, uh, you know, oppressive institutions. In this case, uh, you know, literally the first scene is about this vicious sergeant played by Charlie Hunnam um, who is having sex with his mom. Like I, from the very beginning, we're, we're getting a sense of how much authority has uh, mistreated him. And I think it's really fascinating for a long time. He doesn't want to give in to almost like the baser nature of his birthright. Um, like just over and over you hear about how his mother played by S.C. Davis wants him to give in to being a thief, give in to being a murderer and, you know, even sets him to, uh, work with the, 
a, a another outlaw uh, played by uh, Russell Crowe who we can get into. And it's just over and over they try to collide him with this life of violence and he's uninterested in it for as long as he can. And then at a certain point, it just kind of – there's just a shift. And it, it's it's not that it's not stylish. It's not that it's not um, – entertaining i i think the two main performances here by george mckay who i found like very dull in 1917 he's he's good he's very good in this like he's this is a very physical strange like spindly performance from him and then you have nicholas holt who's playing um <laughs> as our previous guest uh roxana adati said a total shitbag <laughs> <laughs> And, like, I found their confrontations, like, really entertaining, but I also just, like, I didn't know what this movie wanted to be in relation to what it was commenting on. It didn't feel, like, totally interesting to me in, like, a mythic way in the way of something like, I I guess, Assassination of Jesse James is the easy one you can jump to, or even something like uh, I'm Not There, like... It does seem like it wants to play with these personas and these ideas of what we expect of folk heroes. But again, I just didn't know what to make of the very strange, like double halves of this. And finally, I just want to I just want to mirror Matt's point that it is very strange that like. The first half of this film has a lot of queer energy, like uh, whether it's his best friend, uh, whether it's Nicholas Holt, you know, in uh, like there are a number of times where it just seems like McKay is about to, you know, uh, embrace or make out with the character or something. And just that like machismo is then it feels like it's just kind of thrown away for more. Like, uh, I don't know, ornamental purposes. We, we can get into that later. But yeah, this is this is a pretty movie, a good performances, but it just it didn't do a lot for me. All right. Bill Graham. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll piggyback off of the uh, kind of machismo and the the gay energy. Um, there's definitely a lot of that going on, especially in the first half. Um, it doesn't help that uh, George McKay's haircut is the way it is. Um, that, that certainly has a, a little bit of a flair and style to it. Um, the characters around him, the way that they dress, um, that certainly feeds into it. So there's there's a lot of things going on in this film. Um, but I don't know. I, I find these are the movies that I don't typically enjoy. The only exception seems to be things like good time or, um, basically their, their films, um, are the only ones. Yeah. The safties are the only ones. Yeah. Please, please explain how these movies are connected. (laughs) Uh, because these this film i would i would lump this in with something like um what what is what is the uh ah, the the western with guy pierce uh that's really, yes i would <laughs> lump this in with that where it just has a lot of sweaty sweaty energy um throughout and these 
th- that's that's basically what I'm getting at is is sweaty sweaty energy. Um, now this one's a little bit of a slow burn. Um, it starts off relatively slow. Once once Russell Crowe's character gets involved, um, and unfortunately that's also kind of around the same time that uh, it actually. No, it doesn't shift to the to the older uh, towards uh, McKay until later. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel like the film picks up right when Russell Crowe's character uh, joins, and then it finds a little bit of a lull. Um, there were definitely some some slower parts in this film that I, I wasn't quite uh, as entertained with. That I feel like this movie was kind of reaching for, but. I also feel like I don't know what the fuck is happening at the end of the film either. So there's a lot of things going on in this movie that that weren't necessarily on my uh, wavelength, but overall, I still enjoyed it. I guess, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is just what quarantine is doing to me. The, the quarantine is forcing you to enjoy True History of the Kelly Gang. Um, yeah. As a person whose life has not been too affected by the quarantine because I'm still going out and doing stuff and wandering around and talking to people and basically living my life as I had been, uh, I can say with my unaffected brain um, that I really, really liked this movie. Um, Now, here's a couple of caveats that might explain that. First of all, um, love an Australian semi-Western. So that's always good. I really like the proposition. Loved the Nightingale. So... You know, oh, there's there's one Nightingale. I I love that. So yeah, yeah. which uh, Jed Kurtzel also did the score for. Oh, oh yeah, which was probably this, the, the score was probably the, my favorite part of this movie. And is directed mm-hmm. by Jennifer Kent, who previously cast S.C. Davis mm-hmm. in Babadook. Um, what else? Babadook. Uh, <laughs> yes, thank Sorry. you, Bill. Um, <laughs> Someone had to do it. Did they? <laughs> Did they really? Uh, what else was I going to say? Um, uh, oh, I love movies where um, Irish people denigrate the English as much as possible. <laughs> There's a shit ton of that going on here. Yeah. Uh, you know, this really scratched my wind that shakes the barley itch. And again, um, the uh, the Nightingale. Uh, I think the Nightingale primed me for this in a lot of ways. Um, this is a bit more of a pulpy exercise than uh, than the Nightingale, obviously, but I still quite enjoyed it. And uh, I found George McKay fucking riveting in 1917, and I found him equally as commanding of one's attention in this movie. So take that, Michael Snydell. No. <laughs> <laughs> Deal with it. Um... Yeah, so I, I I really had a lot of fun with this movie. I I don't know how much it hangs together as like a singular work. Like I might be enjoying the pieces more than the sum. That being mm-hmm. said, the pieces are so good that I still think that even if they don't amount to more than the sum of their parts, that's still like some good pieces, making a, a an overall genuinely uh, affecting and uh, entertaining experience. Yeah, but like I would say that this. I would say that this movie specifically is going for piece by piece. So that make yeah. that totally makes sense here. Yeah, it's cut into three different sections. Um I watched this at the distillery um <laughs> while I was well, you know, so like I had to pause every now and then. But it was funny because uh my 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 business partner Arthur at some point said, 
hey, whenever you have a chance, like we need to bleed the system for a sec. So I need you to like flip that switch while I hold the bucket. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this this section is called the boy and his dad just died. So I assume that we are coming to the end of it soon. <laughs> and um, we actually weren't. Uh, surprisingly, there was a lot more left to go in the boy section. Um, but yeah, um, I really liked it. I, I enjoyed the hell out of this movie. I um, I also think maybe like the color palette was just like for me. I liked the kind of stark, almost black and white compositions with the lighting at certain points. I loved the use of anachronistic music at certain points. I had no idea anything really about the Kelly gang and was shocked to then look it up and realize that a lot of this movie, even though the opening title cards say that nothing in it is true, a lot of it is pretty close to reality. Um, so that's fun to learn. How much is it? How much of it is, I guess we can get more into this when we do, when we talk about spoilers later, but as of what I've heard, there were pretty large liberties taken where I can't uh, where I can't immediately jump to saying, oh, maybe they just made this choice because it was historically accurate, because apparently some things they did later on were just completely made up. Some things were made up broad strokes. I think they, they didn't like, you know, they, they didn't make him. I don't know. I'm trying to think of like the most inaccurate biopic ever made and i just can't come up with one off the top of my head bohemian rhapsody yeah but <laughs> i didn't ever watch that so i do not feel qualified to speak about it um that was Stop a funny bragging. that was a funny quarantine <laughs> moment was when for some reason i started like an hour-long twitter discourse with michael Seidel and past guest alex heaney that fucking ricocheted all over the place and finally landed on, would it be possible to write a review of a movie without ever having seen the movie? <laughs> um, but I don't do that. So I can't talk about Bohemian Rhapsody because again, as I said on one episode, they sent me two different screeners of that <laughs> and I didn't watch either of them. I could have eaten one accidentally and still had one to look at and I still didn't do it. Oh, um, here, here's... Here's a quarantine corner thing. Um, I finally destroyed all my old uh, screeners. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, I say I, I say I did that. Uh, <laughs> Erica definitely did that. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say your dog did it. No. no. Oh, no. We I'm would have sorry. other issues. I didn't watch it. The dog ate my homework. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, we would we'd have other issues if, if my dog got uh, hold of the screeners and started destroying those because I don't know if any of y'all have ever broken a DVD or CD, but that shit explodes. So yeah, my friends and I used to shoot BB guns at uh, CDs that we stole from our friends. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, Brian! So like true history of the Brian gang. <laughs> we like stole an In Sync album from our friend Lindsay and then like set it up in the backyard on a tree and shot at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they, they make a mess. Any bad music? No. no, yeah, snapping snapping discs is super fun. It's very satisfying. Yeah, in fact, yeah. maybe I should just buy a, an air rifle specifically <laughs> for screener season. <laughs> sure. Just I just want to say we're all past the date of when uh, when we were supposed to break the screeners, so cops are probably at our door right now. I didn't say that I didn't destroy my screeners. Bill is the only one who copped not destroying his screeners. Who copped, huh? Yes. Yes, I did that on purpose. Oh boy. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, what was I? I can't even remember what I was going to say now. Uh, ba- ba- long story short, I this movie, I'm an easy lay for this kind of movie. A bunch of disaffected Irish people hating the English in Australia. Uh, just right up my damn alley. And um, <laughs> I, I think that it can be a little a little on the nose now and then, but I think that it's kind of operatic dreamscape quality kind of calls for that. Like there was a point when he was like pointing a gun at someone again. And the person said, this isn't you. This isn't who you are. And I'm like, Oh my God, if people would just stop telling this kid who he is not and start telling him who he is, maybe he'd stop being so damn confused all the time. But yeah, I really like this movie. I still, I still enjoyed the shit out of it, and uh, I look forward to battling all the people who did not. I haven't had to do that in a while because Michael Snydell ended up enjoying the way back, so we didn't get the fight that everyone was spoiling for. It was fine. It's fine. It's How many movie. times do I got to do this? It's, great damn it's, not, it's not a great movie. It's, 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 it's movie. a good movie. It's, 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 it's <laughs> ben Affleck, best actor. I mean, what other choice do we have? <laughs> Uh, what about, uh, um, or, or, yeah, I guess that's really it. I was going to say, Bad Education's with... HBO, it doesn't count. Yeah, I couldn't even come up with a joke answer. I literally don't know what came out earlier this year anymore. This whole year is a wash, right? Like, nothing matters and no one's going to remember anything? <laughs> I guess, yeah. I mean, if the assistant isn't nominated for Best Picture, I'm going to shank someone in a parking garage somewhere. Oh, is started. that the one uh, that stars the girl from The Americans? <clears throat> Is she in the American? Julia she's in Garner. Ozark. Julia Gardner. She's in yeah, Ozark. Yeah, she's great. I want to see oh, she's that. Fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. Is that on VOD or something? I, yeah, now it is. I think. Um, yeah. You know, watch it, when, you're, it. When, you're, when you're already like you're not like already depressed, but you're kind of leaning towards that. Then watch it. Oh, okay, great. That sounds perfect. Yeah, it'll just amplify it. It's even better. I am. Um, she actually. I just watched uh, the the miniseries Waco that just got put on Netflix, and she's in that. She doesn't get oh. a lot to do, but it's always nice to see her because I loved her in The Americans. She's great in Ozark. Yeah, I do like seeing her when she pops up. She had a really weird small part in Parks of Being a Wallflower, and then she was in that movie Electric Children with uh, Rory Culkin, which I like quite a bit. Oh, that's weird. Waco had Rory Culkin in it, too. Oh, twinsies. <laughs> Guys, what the fuck are we even talking about? <laughs> We're talking about Julia Garner. <laughs> so back now to I want to watch The Americans again, too. Uh, so yeah, uh, true history of the <laughs> Kelly Gang. Um, I think uh, I think we should just jump into spoilers. We've we've yeah, given sure. our thoughts. I have uh, valiantly defended the movie against all of you assholes, except for Bill, who <laughs> says it's as good as good time. I don't, <laughs> it's not what he said. <laughs> no, it's not. But if we can't willfully misrepresent what other people have said, then have we learned nothing from the Trump administration? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Oh man! All right. So yeah, spoilers for the. For, nah, damn it! I did it. You messed it up. I did it. It finally happened. It needs we to, have to have the this entire the. hour again. Uh, that's it. I give up. Um, <laughs> spoilers for True History of the Kelly Gang, uh, starting now. Um, so he really did. He really did put on metal armor. Well, of course he did. I, what that, do you mean? Of course he did. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it, he's he's a big old dumbass. But it worked in reality. That's, it, it, yes, I, I imagine it does work for a period of time until 
at some point the concussion forces will eventually like knock you over. Like you're just going to take a misstep when you can't look at your own fucking feet. And so you're going to fall over and then you're going to get shot in the dumb head. That's why this is a good quarantine movie. It's just like going to get groceries. (laughs) Move over bubble boy. (laughs) (laughs) If I ever see, by the way, I've seen so many videos of people wearing like the full body T-Rex outfits and stuff. If I ever see one of them in the grocery store, I will stab them. And then I will very quickly leave and no one will turn me in. Is this because, because of Ark? Ark made you this angry? Yeah, I actually haven't seen a T-Rex in Ark yet. I'm sure that they're horrifying. No, I just find that's the most obnoxious bullshit. Those fucking costumes are huge. And you're not being funny. You're not even being clever. You're not even being original. We all know why you're doing it. So first I'll take out the cameraman because clearly they all have a friend with their phone out following them so they can put it to music later and post it on TikTok. And then I'm going to stab the T-Rex. Is this a big thing? You haven't seen these? I've seen like so many of them. I, 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 I guess not. I don't think I've no. Obviously you guys aren't on the internet enough. We're not hip with the youth like you are. <laughs> True. <laughs> I'm right on the uh, the cusp. I'm I'm on the bleeding edge of what Gen Z is really into. Oh my, it's all TikTok, baby. The future is TikTok. Future is fan cams of Kim Jong Un's sister. <laughs> Which actually, I saw last night, and then I was like, I think I still have some wine left. <laughs> so, um. <laughs> anyway, the remainder of this podcast will be all of us doing the Renegade. It's a joke for my TikTok people. Um, Yes, so uh, I want to give a special shout out. Nicholas Holt in this movie is um, awesome. Just truly amazing. Like I, every time I see him, he hits a new level that I wasn't certain that he had. And in this movie, he perfectly hits like the the charming nice guy, and then he morphs pretty quickly into like the aloof asshole. And then becomes totally unhinged. And I think my favorite part in the movie is when he has the gun and he's like holding the baby and he's like, you know, don't chew on your fingers here. Chew on this. And he pulls out the gun and you're just watching him and you're like, what is wrong with this guy? And it's it's frightening, but it's also sort of absurd. And then all of the other policemen come in and are like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm questioning her. And then he's like stripped of his rank and told to stop investigating the Kelly gang. And you're like, wow, this is the only responsible action that anyone has taken in this entire movie. And um, yeah, he just plays that whole arc really, really well. I, I think he does. But I guess I guess my question here, Brian, is like. I, I mean, it seems like especially uh, Matt and me have this sense that he changes pretty dramatically from the first half to the second half. And and I think that like Ned I, does, I, you're saying? Uh, I, I'm saying Ned does as well as that Holt relationship. I, I, I think you're he is far more consistent in, in a way than Ned. So I guess my problem with their friendship is it's both 
accelerated in a way that gives you kind of these fun quips, these, you know, like this sense that, oh, we're best friends, but also I'm a cop. And remember that? Like, like that's a fun dynamic. But I also really didn't get a sense of how close he was actually to the family. Like he does those things like, you know, saying, can you get me a date with Kate? And then is not able to help his, his brother you know, lose the jail sentence or, or something. He doesn't even like try to pretend that he's upset about his failure. But it's it's weird though because I think from in that scene that moment is coherent. But I think this film really fails to make any of this have a continuity. Like I I don't get a sense of who these characters are o- over time. How much time has passed? And that would be fine if they wanted to jump around, but they don't really. Like, they do in the sense of, you know, oh, he's a kid, now he's an adult. But there are strong changes in his personality that seem oddly unmotivated to me. Like, if you were going to trace the exact moment that he decides, all right, I'm going to be an outlaw for real – I suppose it's right after he shoots Nicholas Holt in the hand. Is is that what you guys interpret? I think it's after he he um he goes and talks to him at his house, and he realizes that like even holding a gun on someone who's already shot, the guy has no fear for him, and so he really has to lean into it. I guess I feel like honestly, I I don't. I don't know. And I, maybe it's part of the maybe it's a conflict with its its attempt at, you know, truncating so many of its sequences to the point where they're kind of running over each other. And you're kind of you're kind of you're kind of trying to keep up because life is coming so fast to him because that's the idea, which I like in theory. But I honestly feel like his biggest shifts were in the when he was still a boy. I I don't think there were massive and the thing is, if you're going to not give me a character arc, that's perfectly fine. I think that's really fascinating, and I think that's daring to do. But the movie itself didn't have much of an arc thematically or visually. Um, and some things that I was assuming it was, some things I was assuming it was, it was they were it was telegraphing or at least using as motifs weren't really even motifs. Or they they weren't telegraphing them because they were so consistent, you know. So they didn't really have any staying power. Is the thing as as time went on. Yeah, I don't I don't know what to make of uh, Brian. It's interesting you mention the gun moments because I, I just I, I think it's very weird that sometimes he seems afraid to shoot someone and then other times, you know, he's just totally bloodthirsty. Well, and he, like, he only really like comes McKay, off as totally bloodthirsty after they murder that that uh, bivouac of police people. You mean mm-hmm. like when he starts chopping off the guy's head? Uh, his ear. Yeah. Oh, his ear. Yeah. Right. But even before that, they're being searched for, and it, it seems like from the real life story that they seem to murder other people. Uh, like I, I guess, like I feel like this movie escalated really quickly now, in, in terms uh, of the police after them. Yeah, well, you know, he assaulted a police officer. I think what's interesting about this movie is that it, it is about like. Um, colonial brutality and it's it's eventual like end point for this young man who we see 
try to avoid violence quite often. And then sure. he finally just snaps. And so I think part of what really struck me is that, like, yeah, his his actions are a little unmotivated because if you look at them purely as that one thing that happened rather than a lifetime of mm. shame and abuse, then they do seem pretty unmotivated as as these things so often do. Like when a person snaps, it's easy to be like, well, his girlfriend just broke up with him. So I guess that did it. But like that's never the real thing like it's it's never just that one thing that happened it's it's a culmination and so if he had just been fine with his brother you know getting his sentence reduced by three quarters which you know we've talked about you know plea deals before on this podcast that's pretty good plea deal (laughs) (laughs) four months instead of a year like that's that's a big reduction 75 percent probably get out even sooner um and then his, and then, you know, his mom hits him, hits, hits the constable. He shoots him in the hand or the, I guess the wrist. And then, uh, and then he goes and tries to talk to him and he's like, um, you know, can we like make this right? Like what's going to happen? And he's like, fucking no, um, not at all. And you're not going to kill me. Cause I know that you don't have it in you. And so that's when he, he's finally like, all right, you know what? I'm tired of people telling me what I should be, what I am. The only thing that makes sense to me now is uh, putting on dresses with my brothers and uh, just lashing the fuck out. And mm-hmm. and he does. And he's he's quite successful at it. I find it interesting that this movie really doesn't lean into his his like bank robbery and everything. It really it really focuses in on him striking out against the colonial authority. And he's not even an indigenous person. No, he he's he's an Irishman who was transport rucked off, yeah, to 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 Australia, and I think it's um it's interesting to to see this movie and then um oh the Nightingale that are both movies that deal with that concept of like just how 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 much I guess conceptions of race and ethnicity have changed recently because in both of those movies, it's very clear that like the Irish were shittily treated, not probably, you know, not to the point of genocide, like native people were, but it's just so interesting to see that like the, the woman, uh, his mother played by Essie Davis, you know, says to like two different people, like you're not going to take my son so you can do what you've done to the natives here and like try to steal the culture away. Like, sure, I don't want to give you that power. Like that's, that's some stuff that to think about. That's pretty intense. That, that standoff sequence when, when she is confronted or like basically this, I guess, English woman is giving Essie Davis and and her son a chance to basically get a free education. She's like, "Fuck off, no!" And you're then not shows the necklace that he that stole. he stole. Yeah, oh, so good. Essie yeah. Davis yeah. is a is another powerhouse performance in this. She's, she's yeah, she does a great job. Oh my god, that scene where she's handing out the lamb, or no, not oh, the lamb, the uh, the cow, the the beef that uh, Ned stole. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's just like just destroying her husband <laughs> just <laughs> emasculating him like crazy like and the biggest piece for the, the man of the house slab. and the yeah. morsel for the woman he loves most 
and it's just like, <laughs> oh my god! And like, talk I, about the sexual, the psychosexual dynamics of this movie. Like, you could focus on Ned and the other men in his life, Ned and his mom, <laughs> Ned and and uh, Thomas and Mackenzie's character, Mary. Thomas McKenzie is in this movie. Haven't talked about that. I, she doesn't get yeah. shit to do. Yeah, I mean, neither does Ellen. I, I think Ellen is ferocious, but like, it's an incredibly repetitive character. Who is Ellen? And like Thomason, uh, that's S.E. Davis. Like, oh, okay, yes. Yeah, and like Thomason McKenzie, like, uh, yeah, as Matt was, uh, Matt, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on you there. I, no, you're fine. I totally agree with you there. Like, Mary is just like, you got the whore and mother dichotomy here. You got, his mother is someone who, who's like, is pure sexual appetite and primal, you know, familial, uh, yeah, like a, a primal, like a familial belief. And like, I don't think either of those characters like add anything to to the actual understanding of these character or the understanding of of ned to the I understanding mean, of his brothers to like i completely I, disagree with everything you don't you think said. you don't think se davis character adds anything to that no i don't oh, I, I don't agree with that at all yeah because i would say because the thing is she is a personification of tribalism and you're essentially just watching the movie until that becomes literal um I so mean, it is, you know, but that doesn't mean it's not one note. I found it I don't incredibly find it one repetitive. Note at all. She's like, uh, she's she's incredible in this movie. Finding different notes within the chord. I don't even. I don't know shit about music <laughs> theory. <laughs> <laughs> <I don't, laughs> aren't co- chords composed of notes? I don't know. Well, um, you, you, she she's doing the Hendrix where she's playing playing the chords God. backwards, right? Right, yeah, and she lights the guitar on fire and everyone cheers. <laughs> Tortured this metaphor as much as if, if if acting is a harp, she's <laughs> she's playing it with a bow. That's You're really harping on this metaphor and I don't like it. <laughs> um, I, I don't know, I think it feels pretty flat. Glockenspiel. I think that S.C. Davis is, is doing a lot in this movie. I think I, her evolution, I found to be one of the more interesting aspects of this movie. Cause she, what I was about to talk about it, Michael. <laughs> Brian, <He's> fight so- me. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I'm breaking quarantine. I'm coming to Chicago. We're fighting under the bean. <laughs> you can't go. Okay. <laughs> what? What is that? What is it? Did I get something oh, wait, that's wrong? Not, that's not pragmatic. <laughs> Go under the red line. Do you know how many fucking Go people off. have touched the bean? It's probably worse than the red line. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I have, I've been to the bean. I did not touch the bean. So I will I will state that openly. I have never been to Chicago. Um, if I do go, though, I will not take a picture of the bean. Nah, yeah, but, but you will touch it and need a shower. <laughs> yes, I will touch the bean. I just will not take a picture. Of it. I, I will actually take a picture of everything around that. the bean. Just sorry, bean. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> anyway, uh, welcome back to touching the bean. With John Edwards. Um, all, our, all our followers just disappeared. 
How many listeners do we have right now? We don't have any. I think we have one, and it might just be me because I'm watching to like make sure we're still up. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's the, I, we had. I don't know. I don't know how many people have like seen the true history of the Kelly Gangs. Oh, it's just true history of the yeah, Kelly Gang. They haven't seen the true history because it's not a movie. Yeah, it's not. That's not a movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> fair point. Well, well played. S.C. Davis begins the movie <laughs> to get back on topic. Oh, we're starting here with yes. Bean. Did you think of touching the Bean again, Brian? Yes, I did. <laughs> I'm gonna. <laughs> I feel like we have to turn that into code for something. Um, no, no it's we don't. I understand that it's already code, but we need to make it like a code that's applicable to the movie. Or any movie. But anyway, so Essie Davis in this film. She begins as a mother who would do anything for her sons. And then morphs over the course of the movie into a woman who wants her sons to be willing and able to do anything for her. I mean, the, this, the showdown in this movie is when Mary shows up to Ellen's jail cell and is like, you know, Ned is out there raising fucking hell. Because he's trying to get you out and he's like, you know, uh, furious that the injustice is done. You need to like write him a letter. I can get it to him to tell him to like stop because this isn't going to end well. And I want him to be able to meet his child. And S.C. Davis is just like by this point, like been stripped of every artifice that's covering up her 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 pride. And the fact that her son is finally doing the things that she thought she saw in him when he stole that leg of cattle. You know, and she's like, it's the greatest joy, the entire purpose is for, like, a child to, like, destroy the world for their mother. And then, like, she looks at the baby and says, like, wouldn't you like to die for your mom? And it's like, Mary's sitting there like, no, my purpose is to die for my child so that they can go on. I'm not asking my child to waste their life in service of me. I'm the cobblestones that are supposed to lead this kid to a brighter pasture. And you want them to just sit down and polish the stones. It doesn't make any sense. Like that's that's the 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 arc. That's the twist. Is Essie Davis just shedding every bit of like matronly motherly humanity that she has and just becoming, you know, through the abuse of the colonial system, just enamored with the concept of her son's love and or hatred for her driving him to strike back at this system that has treated them so poorly. You're making her sound frighteningly justified. <laughs> I mean, it's a little no, bit. No, 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 no. <laughs> that doesn't have to go Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly she took it too far, but, um, you know, and that's, what's interesting. You said like, Oh, it's the mother whore thing. But like, the interesting part is that it's it there is literally a mother and literally a sex worker, but the dichotomy that you talk about when you talk about Madonna horror, mother and whore sure. on a on an ontological level is completely reversed. Because the mother is the evil like the quote unquote <laughs> evil one who's gonna like lead to the downfall of the man, and the sex worker is the kind good person who's trying to build a better life for them. The yeah, thing is, I don't think these. I don't. <laughs> I don't think these contradictions are really. I don't think they're as. I don't think they're as subversive or progressive no. as the movie thinks they are. No, I don't think the movie thinks they're subversive or progressive. 
it thinks they're interesting. <laughs> I think that they're interesting. I don't think that that means they have to be subversive or progressive. Would you not say that a movie about a, I will, I mean, how much do you think that this all ties? Because you were talking about his about his personality essentially stemming from any sort of you know psychosexual tension that is uh, has to do with his mother. How much of that would you say has to do with, or how much of how much of his queerness that becomes apparent in the not even apparent it was always apparent but it becomes it be, goes from subtext to text um how much of that do you think goes back from what is what it's essentially turning on its ear in terms of its its gender dynamics because i don't really think it's doing enough to actually to actually stick the landing when it actually tries to become more overt about its about you know who these people really are as opposed to who they're uh being ascribed to be I mean, the first scene is literally about uh, learning that his father is a cross-dresser and potentially, you know, is uh, potentially has a, a man in town or either way. Like, it's bookended by the uh, by the queerness, you know, as you're saying, Matt. Like, I, I just – it is very strange that that seems positioned as such a pivotal thing but seems to not matter other than – just it being a cultural thing of it being crazy that they're wearing dresses. Well, the thing is, and they even, they kind of even, they make a purpose of downplaying it in the movie. I mean, it's when they, when he comes across a bunch of guys who are wearing dresses, he only says, yeah, it scares the shit out of them. Like, so I was, I was, you know, I was, I was constantly at odds in terms of the movie. How much of it is it actually trying to deconstruct the how much of the mas- how much of his masculinity was essentially projected onto him how much of him is a pro- how much he is a product of his environment you know i i i just feel like all of these different all these different chords were completely despondent in terms of where they were actually going they never really intersected i mean i personally i found the i i just watched this movie like 9 hours ago if even that much so i think if i had maybe had a day to sit with it and if you all could have given me these uh questions and your problems beforehand <laughs> i might have been able to cobble together a better defense but just coming off of of what i saw and what my gut reaction to it was i mean the movie is is a lot about how this man has to chafe against every role that has been basically given to him before he was even born and so it it is interesting to see his like the the violence with which he responds to the idea of his father wearing a woman's frock and um then how he he's kind of able to embrace that in a way as he gets older under the guise of this like you know if people's if you come at a guy with a knife and you're wearing a dress then you must be crazy and crazy scares people and that's that's good for you as a as a as a bush ranger like it and he's able to take that power and and find a way to square that concept it's also weird because there's a point where nicholas holt talks about having sex while wearing a dress and he says it feels like you're breaking the law i feel like a lot of this movie is is all about the the ways in which people will attempt to bust out of the strictures that society places upon them and if the only way to do that is through violent outlaw behavior 
then you can be shoved to a point where that needs to happen. I think it's also interesting that while I believe that he has some actual affection for Mary, um, that a lot of his most overt displays of affection and joy are with the men in his life. And now it is, it is definitely coded queer. I don't know if he is, or even if the movie's saying he is, but there's definitely a level of like uninhibited happiness that he feels when he is able to express himself in that way in a, in a scenario where he doesn't feel like he's going to get castigated for it, like by being either called weak or strange. And so I think a lot of it is like almost against the concept of labeling and rather just chasing one's own happiness and comfort. Yes. But the thing is that makes all these conflations through the first half. And then at the second half, it really downplays them to the point, to the point where it kind of, it, it feels, I, I, I don't know if this would be the right way to put it. It feels like the movie almost doesn't have, it, it seems like it's almost too tepid to actually dive into everything. It, you know, everything it's, it's, it's pointing to for the first half. Cause it's like, you talk about how this movie specifically is when you talk about how it's when it's how it's uh, portraying any sort of, you know, straight relationship versus anything that's outside the norm in that regard. I mean, you talk about, you know, a guy, it, uh, like Michael said, it's bookended essentially with this queerness. And then you go a little bit further. You have Russell Crowe as this father figure who's essentially like, you know, it's almost with that folk song where they're essentially just saying the C word over and over. You know, you're essentially. Cunty. You know, yeah, exactly. But the thing is, you're essentially, you know, you're conflating masculinity with misogyny. Um, and then not too much longer into the movie, you conflate masculinity with sex and you conflate sex with torture essentially i mean you have you know russell crowe with a rope around charlie hunter's balls pulling them apart um as he goads a child into shooting him and then it's and so all to shoot these, his balls specifically yeah, yeah exactly and so all of these things are you know even for a movie that is you know you know filled with amoral characters this movie at least still has a, a semblance of a moral compass and it's decidedly at the south of it the entire time, which I think is the most fascinating part about it. But once it gets into the characters actually just, you know, owning, owning themselves or at least owning themselves as much as they can within the context they're stuck to, it just feels like it never goes as far as it should. I, I don't disagree about like where, where a lot of these trails kind of tail you know tail off um but i do think that this film ends up going in a lot of different directions that if it held on to if it tried to juggle all of the balls in the air that it's trying to from from beginning to end this would be a very very long film and very very haphazard i i it would take a master editor to to put this together I and would, so I like if you made this movie like three hours and you just completely fell into everything i think this movie would be way better i don't i don't disagree but you know then we start running into issues of how much how much control this this director had over this film and the budget and things of that nature right because a three-hour film uh, on this subject which, you know, uh, 
I guess y'all y'all kind of detailed earlier, which there is a plethora of of <laughs> films about just these these characters, right? So I don't know if a new three hour film is necessarily going to uh you know set people's hair on fire as far as like oh yeah that can make a ton of money, right? So you know th- there's always going to be strictures around like. This isn't Martin Scorsese, right? Yeah, like no, of course. I mean, I'm not looking at it in terms of those regards. I'm just looking at it if you were to basically just look at the movie as its own entity, what would it look like? And I think there are even, even aside from who has the decisions, you know, who's making the decisions in these regards, there's some things that stuck out to me. And I don't think they were, I'm not sure if they were meant to stick out as much as they did to me. Mostly, I, I found it fascinating. This movie has no nudity at all. Um mm-hmm. And especially if you're going to actually, if you're going to, if you're going to look at someone who is not, if you're going to look at a, a group of characters who are not, you know, capital M machismo, but you're also not going to have any, mi- I just, I mean, cause the, the, the blocking is so specific, essentially as specifically with Nicholas Holt, you have a scene where he essentially is sitting cross-legged with only socks on, but you can't see any nudity. He and kept his socks and garters on. What a yeah. piece well, of that, shit. I mean, you can you can see you can see his pubic bone. Like you can see his pubic <laughs> hair. Like you can see real far down his legs. So yeah, th- like the blocking is very specific and very pointed. Um, you know, there's the scene with with S.E. Davis where he's kind of rubbing himself, getting himself hard, and it's just like he's just wearing underwear. And like when he first like kind of like strips down to his underwear i was like this is odd like you you still have another layer (laughs) yes but i thought it was i thought it was odd because it feels like this movie is one in a in a weird sort of way it feels like this movie is trying to exist within a vacuum and i feel like you can't do that if you're trying to comment on these subjects because if i think about something like the first thing that comes to mind is totally different movie but first thing that comes to mind is under the skin um if you're talking about that movie it is falling into it is, you know, it is presenting the starting point of the male gaze and then reverting that into the female gaze. And along the way, there is male nudity to be had. I can't think of any movies that have that many erect penises. And it, it is such a, it is Short such bus. a, yeah, and it's a very specific, it's a very specific choice that kind of catches your attention. But the movie is so blasé about it that it doesn't feel like it's rubbing it in your face. That sounds wrong. The, <laughs> it's Touching not, the gun? It's not Gaspar Noe's love. The, sure. But the, you know, those those decisions are at least playing against some sort of, you know, pre-constructed norm, which this movie seems to just sort of exist three steps away from the entire time. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I, I don't disagree that that those trails just completely just kind of end. Um, and it's unfortunate because I feel like that is the interesting part. I I don't know. I, I don't want to say that's the most interesting part about this film because that that ends up reducing a lot of these subjects into like sexuality and, you know, like. I don't know anything about these fucking people. So I don't know if that's interesting or not. Like, I don't know. It, and all of these other films. So, you know, there's a whole history that I'm missing here, but I, I do feel like that is a unique perspective that I haven't seen explored that often. And this film was seemed to be really going for some real energy in that regard. 
um, starting with like the introduction of the man sequence, right? When he's like bent over backwards and you're just like, what the fuck is going on? Here? And there's a goddamn oh. electric guitar playing and you're like, yes. what? what are we doing yeah. now? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the, you know, there, there's some, fiddles? yeah, there's some, <laughs> there's some real energy in this film and it feels like to me, it starts to kind of lose itself. Um, where like that, that sexual energy is kind of gone. It, it flirts it, it, or I say, I could, I should say it flits in and out here and there, um, with like that torture sequence, uh, between Essie Davis and Nicholas Holt and some of these other things. But I mean, for the most part, it's, it, it just kind of disappears and, Again, I I think this film is trying to tell a complete story, but is skipping around so much that you end up getting this weird energy, you know, throughout. Where yeah, it's just kind of, and that's my biggest issue with it is that it's trying to tell a complete story. You don't have to do that, especially when the first half of your movie is a complete mosaic and it's going, it's jumping from from scene to scene and nothing's really ending or beginning and it bleeds into itself. Don't try to solidify that and actually make a narrative out of it because you don't hold up to your own convictions. Well, yeah. like, this is a movie that starts off and the entire first half is essentially just, you know, a flow of emotions and you know, it, it plays a lot more like a song or something. And then the second half, it's actually trying to, you know, wrangle all of those pieces in and then end with a little bit of a bow on the end of it. Uh, you know, the ending I would say is satisfying, but it's satisfying for a plot thread that is woefully undercooked. It's kind of fascinating too. It, it, it's interesting, Bill. You were starting to talk about length, length in the relation of this. That the the point at which the constable is killed by Ned. There's 30 minutes after that. It, it's very strange that that scene is almost, you know, painted as the finale. And then we still have, you know, the, you know, kind of the historical finale, as well as a scene that weirdly reminded me a lot of A Hidden Life. Um, Which one? That final, that final scene. Oh, uh, yeah, where, yeah, I can see that. But uh, I, I guess like that, that's where it kind of... It, it kind of loses me over and over in that second period. And, and, and Brian, I have to say, I actually really, I really liked your description uh, about what you were saying uh, about how, you know, this is where he is finally getting to choose his own identity. This is him bucking all of those expectations that come and some, and maybe the only way to do that is violence. But I, I, I do think though that as long as we're talking about energy, I think it's not just like a sexuality, but a radicalism that's almost lost in, in that second half. I, I think it's like, you can also say it's pretty weird that this movie gets a lot more flashy when we get into a more traditional outlaw story. We've already talked about the strobes, but like when we get to, you know, more violent set pieces and stuff, you know, they're doing a lot of, uh, you know, tracking shots. We have camera, you know, GoPro type things put on uh, put on people's chest and things along those lines. It, it's a very visceral type of filmmaking. And I, I'd almost say that Kurtzel seems to 
to relish those scenes more, even though I find them like way less psychologically interesting. So I, I guess what, what I'm saying here is movies are contradictions. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, I I think to, to put an actual bow on that, I think that, that even that idea of bucking those expectations, I, I don't, I don't know, for instance, why we get that long sequence with the with, with the teacher, for instance, where he's talking about writing his own history. Because I think that notion of writing your own history is almost at odds with those expectations you're talking about, Brian. Because like, when you consider that he's trying to create this grand unified – theory of why he did everything and i think it's it's very weird that that he's trying to bring together all of this chaos and then you get a final sequence in a government building where they denounce him and then he gets his own monologue and in the end i don't know what this film actually thinks of net do they think that he's just Another folk hero that's, you know, overwhelmed the understanding of Australia? Do they think he's just a a, a man who's at war with his own nature? Like, I, I really don't know what to make of those final sequences or why, for instance, they didn't play with history and make the constable in the final battle. Like, it, it, it's very unusual to me when this movie chooses to stop and start. Well, I would say, oh man, there's so much that I, I, I know, I know said that was like directed at me, but then just, kept yeah, going. Brian, remember everything. Uh, I'll start with, <laughs> the where are you taking notes? <laughs> I, I'll, yeah, I should have been taking notes. I'm like, all right, well, after this like 30 minute screed that everyone else is going on, they might want me to respond to some of this. <laughs> I think it's okay. So I found the, the English teacher scene to be a many layered little bit of, 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 of tension. First of all, Ned clearly wants to be able to control his, his, his history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he has not been in control of anything his entire life. And he thinks that in putting these words down on paper, he might be able to at least control the way that he is remembered by his progeny. What is interesting about that? is that he's talking to an English teacher and continuously repeats the fact that this guy teaches English. Ned is Irish. The Irish speak Gaelic. Sure. Ned is is uh, probably only ever been taught English because the English made the Irish language legal. Um, and they are living in an English colonial society, even if they're just living on the fringes of it. And so he is still trying to tell his own story in the language of those who have oppressed him. And now he's got this English teacher who is like promising to help him. And he can't help but lean into that a little bit because he is getting some level of, if not acceptance, then at least understanding and aid. And then, of course, that guy goes out and signals the train not to to hit the, the trap that they'd set. So, you know, there's a lot to read into there. Uh, He kind of screwed himself over. And then I believe, um, you know, at the end, he doesn't get his wish. Uh, The the guy speaking in front of parliament or whatever 
says like you know we don't have disraeli we don't have jefferson we have for some reason ned kelly like and he's almost like like why on earth would we be into this man like this murderous bank robin you know fool who 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 you know got hung and didn't get any of his last requests and i think that's kind of a a way of looking at like even with everything that happened even with all the bloodshed even with ned who couldn't get the newspapers to he couldn't even threaten the newspapers into printing what he wanted them to print about him sure which is a tried and true uh western narrative tick which was seen in um godless at one point honestly uh you know they're they're standing up and they're like this isn't the 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 national figure that we deserve like we deserve someone better like we should be better like this man is nothing the joke's on you snotty english son of a bitch because guess who is the australian who has had the most biographies written about him (laughs) ever it's ned fucking kelly there is something inherent in the birth of modern australia with the colonial forces and everything that Ned Kelly speaks to people either as a boogeyman or as a a Robin hood figure or something, there is something there. And even if he can't give his own reasoning, even if he can't be the one to claim why it's happening, it's interesting that this guy who never felt like he was understood, never felt like he was given a fair shake should become like the most well-researched well-regarded most studied australian of all time especially because back when he was doing it there was no real concept of australia and all these people were still calling themselves english and irish so that's my response to some of what you all said i don't know if it makes any sense i don't know if it's no it does okay (laughs) It sounds more interesting than the movie we saw. It's not getting it from the movie. That's the problem (laughs) with you, Snydell. (laughs) Oh boy, it became direct. (laughs) You do that every now and then. You're like, well, that sounds more interesting than the movie. But it's like, I didn't come up with that on my own. This isn't happening in a vacuum. This is what I got from the movie. It's like, it's like, it's like I made a, a steak. And you're like, this is better than that stupid cow you had outside. And I'm like, it's from the cow. Without the cow, there is no steak. I would have nothing to give you if it weren't for the cow. Yeah, but you had to, like, cut it up and everything. And I, I, you know, the steak is, it's nicely placed on the plate. And it's, uh, are there beans next to the steak? Yeah, you want to touch the beans. Nah, oh boy! Um, no, but know. yeah. In, in all fairness, I would say this movie. I, this is you know one of those movies that I do think is a lot more fascinating to is for me a lot more fascinating to talk about than actually watch um, because yeah, because it fair. is a because it is a Rorschach test in this regard. I mean, like, so I don't really think the. I mean, personally, I don't think the idea of that sounds more fascinating than the movie thing. Huh, Brad. <laughs> Wait, he was saying that he doesn't like. I was what agreeing you said. with, yeah, yeah. Oh, Boom, Michael Snydell, you could go straight to hell. <laughs> Ride that deep dish pizza down to your alderman's office and fucking suck it. <laughs> go touch the bean, you son of a bitch. <laughs> oh Jesus! Okay. 
just got very visceral very quick you're the francesca hey. of this group now oh jesus it's oh, a man. too hot to handle reference oh, as long as i'm not the Haley. <laughs> yeah no no one wants to be the Haley. oh jesus no bills are Haley. <laughs> or the harry Oh man, Gary. Um, yes. Yeah, so anyway, very glad Matt Sapola that you agree with me <laughs> that Michael Snydell's statement was <laughs> horrible. But here, this is the thing: what you said about it being a Rorschach test is is true of almost all movies. Like when we talk about movies, this is gonna this is the most hacky bullshit that I've ever said, but yeah, it is true. It. <laughs> when we talk about movies, what we're really talking about is ourselves. Oh. No, I agree with that. It's no. true. I just wish yeah. I could come up with a better way to say it. Matt, it was about it back. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? About the journey. It was about the friends we met along the way. <laughs> the real movie was inside us all along. The real movie <laughs> was life. Was life itself starring Oscar Isaac. Life itself is the the true. What was it? Unreliable narrator. And then you get hit by a bus or some bullshit. Hmm. I don't know. I'm done. We're done. <laughs> Bill, we're Bill's tapping, tapping out. out. Get the I, fuck um, out of here. Well, Matt, you you had agreed with me, and I'd love for you to expand upon that oh if you will. <laughs> you do not have to do that. That's <laughs> oh, I know. Fuck off, Brian. <laughs> I, I, no, I legitimately thought that you maybe had more to say in that vein, and I just wanted to make it... <laughs> Sound the most conceited narcissistic. Throw a cracker at this at this situation and just see if if he would bite. Yeah. No, I mean I will be honest though. I do. The, my main thing of why I should like this movie a lot more in theory because it is a Rorschach, it is you know such a Rorschach test in terms of its structure and in terms of how many how many different ideas kind of bob and weave and then disappear or reappear. Um, but it is also a movie that is trying. I feel like trying to be a Rorschach test and that's where it falls apart because it's, it's trying to be something like that, but it's also trying to wrap up its narrative in the second half, which I don't like. Um, so instead for the rest of it, I was just sort of, you know, sticking to like Ari Wegner. We haven't mentioned him. Ari Wegner shot this thing. It looks great. He shot um, in fabric, which is one of my favorites of last year. And then he shot um, Lady Macbeth for that. Um, the, you know, Jed Kurtzel's score is fantastic. Um, strong sound design i i'm more i'm i think everyone in the peripheries is a lot more fascinating in their performances than i don't really think mckay does much here um but i kind of feel like that works because he is a product of his environment but yeah hmm. uh, let's we all talk- fight matt now <laughs> <laughs> have we talked Please. at all about uh, russell crowe being in this movie oh he's so good i loved him in this He's yeah. so good. He's like that South Park uh, version of him. <laughs> just fighting everyone. Yeah, his tugboat. Fighting the tugboat. Yeah. I am. Um, yeah, he's a great hulking presence in this. Oh yeah, he's a great job. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we shouted him out by name because I feel like yeah. we shouted out everyone else by name. Yeah. No, Probably. I mentioned Russell Crowe in my in my little brief snippet. Oh, okay, great. Yep. Um. And yeah, Charlie Hunnam. I I really like Charlie Hunnam when he's not the main American American accent. Yeah, (laughs) actually, that might be more true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I think he's fine, but I think when his when he's doing an American accent, it's kind of like Jack Nicholson with like battery acid in his teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that's yeah. It's just I don't know. I still think a lot. 
I don't I, think about I don't think about Pacific Rim at all, but I think about the trailer because the trailer has all this. It's like came we thought it come from the stars. <laughs> like, that's true. He's got his American accent in that trailer at the very least is. There's a lot happening in the back of his throat. I, I still <laughs> like Charlie Hunnam the most in Undeclared and everything else. He's. I I actually fine. just remembered that I really loved him in uh, the Lost City of Zed. Yep, the Lost City of Z. Of Zed. <laughs> Zed, come on, Mike. You've seen the movie. You've heard them say. I heard it. Anyway, um, Percy Fawcett. Uh, I think we're mm-hmm. done. <laughs> I do believe that we have reached the end. Does anyone have any final thoughts on true history of the Kelly Gang? It Great. doesn't come together. <laughs> I don't, no, I, I wish. I don't know. I wish there were more anachronisms. Go full Marie Antoinette in the soundtrack. I don't know. Oh, I was, yeah, I was. I was about to say a Knight's Tale, but yeah, Marie Antoinette too. Yeah, yeah. I love it when a period film is just like fuck it and just rolls with some some discordant modern day or yeah, whatever. Um, clearly my brain is broken. Let's get out of here. Uh, so again, uh, this is the true history of the, God damn it. It's just true history of the Kelly gang. (laughs) Check it out. It does not have a definite article in front of it. So make sure you leave that off when you're Googling it It is on VOD now. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash the film stage show to give us your money. Uh, $1 an episode gets you access to our Slack channel and first crack at all of our great raffles. Also, don't forget to check out Dawson City Frozen Time on Mubi. You can go to mubi.com slash filmstage for a free 30-day trial. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage. And uh, what are we talking about next week, Michael Snydell? Uh, we're talking about Catch Me If You Can next week. Oh, that's right. <laughs> good, good. Are we, we, we will literally do anything, guys. You you don't get it. <laughs> I know we've missed the news peg window for it, but are we still going to talk about that thing you do? Oh. Do you think we could just talk about both of them at once? <laughs> they take place in vaguely the same time frame. They both involve uh, Tom Hanks. Well, we do already have a guest for Catch Me If You Can. I guess uh, I am certain I that they ask. have probably seen that thing you do. I I haven't. What? What? Who on this podcast right now has not seen that thing you do? What's that? Oh my god! <laughs> Who am I working with? Anyway, let's. So yes, next week we'll be talking about Catch Me If You Can, and uh, yeah, we already have a guest lined up. So look forward to that. And, um, yeah, so let's tell the fine people at home where we could be found between now and the oh. next. I'm sorry, what was that? What was that? Kind of what I, was I that did... noise? I did not know Tom Hanks made a movie, he made two movies. Huh, you know, his blood I mean, and is that's his director. I mean, he's made a shit ton of his actors. No, oh, well, obviously, yeah. fucking, I know who that is. That thing but, you do uh, in Larry Crown. Oh my god, I forgot about that movie. Let's do an episode on Larry Crown. No. Let's do yes. Wait, Larry Crown is not the one with the the scooter, <laughs> the scooter gang. 
No, what's the oh, Mel Gibson directorial debut the or whatever? Beaver? Was that his the first? Beaver. Passion of the yeah. Christ? <laughs> Wait, no, the Beaver. Oh, I, oh, I don't know why the first right, thing I thought of was the Beaver. Right, yeah. <laughs> no, I was thinking about the Beaver, though. I don't know why. Mel Gibson has made many movies, a few of which have won Academy Awards. Yes, the yes. beaver is pretty good. Yes. The beaver was directed by Jodie Foster, wasn't it? I, I said, oh my that. God, you're right. Okay, <laughs> no one's listening anymore, Michael, because you're so catastrophically wrong. And she went on to make the movie with the best title ever, <laughs> Money Monster. That's right. I reviewed that. <laughs> Look, who among us is not a money monster? <laughs> Be a real American. Be a let's, let's, let's get the fuck out of here. That's what I thought. We are all of us money monsters. Let he who is not a money monster <laughs> cast the first stone. Okay. Uh, so let's tell the five people at home where we can be found between now and the next time when we will be reviewing Larry Crown. Let's um, <laughs> Let's start uh, with you. You can find me on Twitter talking about watching really, really weird movies to relax, like Climax at <laughs> two in the morning at Sepola Matt. Um, I don't know. I mean, you can find some stuff on my own the spool. I reviewed this recently. I reviewed Bad Education as well. I wrote that thing about Psychonauts that I was talking about. Um, and then I'm a, a gaggle of other places, including uh, the back of your consciousness that you've repressed. Oh, you're the voice. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Good to put a name with the voice. All right, Bill Graham, what about you? Uh, you can find me doing a Mission Impossible rewatch on Twitter at CableBFG. Uh, I started my girlfriend off with Ghost Protocol. We had a conversation about whether she had seen the previous films, and she was like, yeah, I think I vaguely remember them. And she she looked at me seriously, and she was like, do I need to see the others? And I was like, I don't think you need to see seven hours of, of the other films to start with Ghost Protocol. And so did she not like it? Is that why she asked? Oh, no, no, no. This was before. Yeah. So uh, I thought it was like 30 minutes into the movie and she's like, please don't make me watch the rest of these. And then I was going to say, like, I am sorry, but you need to break the engagement. (laughs) (laughs) No, Uh, no. She enjoyed Ghost Protocol. And then the next day I was like, surprise, we're going to watch Rogation. And she was like, oh, you should have followed up Ghost Protocol with Mission Impossible Impossible 2. Yeah, that would have been the best just fucking whiplash ever also a great movie so i mean mission possible 2 is fantastic Uh, but i am purchasing the entire mission impossible collection in 4k right now so that's that's what i'm that's what my life is (laughs) i'm gonna go blast uh, that that limp biscuit song (laughs) metallica okay so they Metallica made a song for the film, but Limp Biscuit is the one that covers the the uh, actual theme song. I think the Metallica well, one is. Covers? I'm sorry, Matt. Were you saying something? I'm sorry. I just thought it's weird that Limp Biscuit only does covers for movies. Like, I don't know. Like when they did that uh, Limp Biscuit Behind Blue Eyes cover to open the oh, Angry Birds yeah. movie. Wait, what? I what? That I know. wait, wait, wait. That's what opened everybody. Angry shut up. Matt Wait, you didn't know this? Say exactly what you said again. 
I just think it's funny that Limp Bizkit seems to only do mo- covers for movies, like when the, the Angry Birds movie opened with the cover of Behind Blue Eyes. I am furious at you <laughs> for making me know that. Oh, I was also the only person in the theater, and I was like, I'm having a stroke. <laughs> yeah, clearly. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so without looking it up, I'm going to say with utter certainty... Metallica had the I Disappear song that was for Mission Impossible 2, but um, Limp Biscuit had a song that I believe was called Now I Know Why You Want to Hate Me. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. That's, that, that, that incorporates the actual mission. Or, yeah. No, they like, they, no it, it, is, it, it starts with a barrel, 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 Yeah. It's not a great it's song. It's not really terrible. It's sad. I, I really like that I Disappear song, and they didn't, like, tag it into any of their actual albums. Like, it might be on, like, their greatest hits or something like that, but, like, it is full-on not on any of their albums. The only way you can get it is if you fucking purchase it, like I did, through the Mission Impossible soundtrack. <laughs> An A-side, B-side. <laughs> we should one day just have, like, a, a string of people send us their monologues like a two to three minute monologue that we then just release as a podcast episode all stitched together what is the most embarrassing soundtrack that you bought for one song madagascar what i wanted the sasha baron cohen cover of uh i like to move it oh boy (laughs) see this is the gold that we would get Uh. oh my god and michael i titanic is an easy answer but it is a beautiful one no, it is, but I literally bought it for Celine Dion's song, so. I, um, I should have known probably early on that I wasn't totally straight when I, I wanted to buy Celine Dion <laughs> and Avril Lavigne in the same month, so. Which album? Let Go? Yes. Good. Good album. <laughs> Good. It's a banger. Yeah. So I I bought uh, the, the soundtrack to uh, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. For the Diddy. Puff Daddy featuring Jimmy Page, come with yeah, me. Ju- Wait, is he Diddy now, or did he change that back? I have did literally no idea what he is right now. He's had like thirteen different names, like legal, uh, like legally changing that name. Yes, but anyway, that I, that's probably mine. I I feel like I can more own the fact that i bought the city of angels soundtrack for that uh goo goo doll song because i still will stand up and say that i fucking love that song but i will not make excuses for come with me uh, anyway great crazy town <laughs> wait is crazy town on that no I, I actually i don't know keep going i'm gonna look this up what's happening I looked it up. Apparently there's a Brain Stew Godzilla remix, which I will be looking oh. up as soon as we end this episode. <laughs> Michael Steidel, why don't you tell the fine people at home where you can be found between now and the next episode? Uh, I, I can be found on Twitter, um, uh, Letterboxd, um, and um, yeah, no, I have a review on the spool uh, about a really good film called the thousand pieces of gold which is available in a lot of virtual cinemas uh, across the country and i'm apparently reviewing something called walk away joe 
this week. I, I love to find out about assignments during this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that on the email. I was like, what the hell is that? Uh, it's apparently an unlikely friendship between a young boy searching for his father and a wandering loner hiding from his past. Ew. I don't like that at all. That sounds real, real gross. When you're a um, critic, you have to be open-minded like we are. <laughs> I just think I, th- I think that's just a bad synopsis. Like that just makes me think that that is like some sort of horror movie. Well, it's Jeff Dean Morgan and David St- St- Strahan. Is that how you say his name? D- wait, Strathairn or David Strahan? Strathairn. <laughs> is he? Did he once play Edward R. Murrow? Y- yes. Yes. Then it is not Strahan. It is Strathairn. <laughs> anyway, as for me, uh, I can be found at my personal site brianjrowan.com all over the internet. Every single what's I'm gonna call it social media site at Brian J Rowan. Of oh, course, gosh. you can find my writing at thefilmstage.com, and you can find every episode of this here podcast thefilmstage.com as well. Thank you for bearing with us. Oh my god. And. We look forward to speaking to you next week when we talk about Catch Me If You Can.